So, good evening. Um, my name is Yvonne Rand, and um, my home path is in the Zen tradition. My first teacher was Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, and I've studied with uh, other uh, Zen teachers, including this pr- wonderful uh, Roshi, whose picture is here on this uh, uh, magazine cover, uh, Shoto Harada Roshi, who's up in uh, Whidbey Island, in, uh, just outside of Seattle. Um, but I've also studied with um, uh, both His Holiness the Dalai Lama and with a quite marvelous uh, Lama no longer with us, uh, uh, Tara Tulku, who uh, both my husband and I studied with for a number of years until he passed. And um, somehow or another, we got caught in rescuing um, Buddhist sacred art from Tibet that the Chinese, after they invaded Tibet, sent to um, Chinese antique dealers in Beijing and in San Francisco. And my husband was at the time... Uh, working in a law firm where he was a partner, and he would take his lunch on Grand Avenue, and he walked into the store one day, and here were the floor was just covered with these beautiful Buddha figures, and he just burst into tears. And uh, the uh, antique dealer, whose name is Hank Cheng, a quite quite marvelous person, was so relieved because my husband knew what he had, and Hank didn't, and didn't know what to do with all of this sacred art. So, um, and it was around the time of the Lomita Prieta earthquake when the tourist business in in the Bay Area uh, disappeared. So um, Hank said, you guys saved my business because we would pay him a little bit of money every month towards the collection. And he said it was just enough to keep me and my two salespeople and the rent. (laughs) He said, so I'm deeply grateful to you. So every time I look at the collection, I I thank Hank for um, being the the, uh, conduit, if you will. Uh, And I find um, being here, one of the reasons I love coming here is because there's so much iconographic material here. that uh, it's primarily from the chi- in the Chinese context, but um, but very rich and and consistent um, in in the uh, sacred art of uh, of the Buddhist tradition. Um, I've been practicing uh, in the Buddhist tradition since 1966, and um, I'm deeply grateful for having uh, found this uh, tradition. I actually um, was exposed to Buddhism earlier when I was at Stanford. There was a couple who had uh, studied uh, Buddhism in China, and they were teaching, and I took their classes for a couple of years. So they also exposed me to this tradition, again, primarily through the iconographic uh, aspect, but not only. So I'm always glad to be able to uh, come and meet with uh, and, and be engaged with people who are not just in the Zen school, um, because I think that we can learn a lot from 
the different traditions. There are different emphases. And I particularly like coming here because uh, the uh, iconographic system is so rich and quite beautiful. Um, I think it was yesterday. I usually read the New York Times when the paper is kind of old. I don't want to rush into anything. (laughs) So uh, this is a fairly recent page, August 5th of this year. (laughs) I've been reading, you know, 2008 and 2007. It's amazing how quickly you can read an issue when it's that old. It's wonderful. Anyway, this is The Power of Negative Thinking. (laughs) Very dramatic illustration. It's not a. It, it's it's a. It's not the uh, the appropriate uh, labeling, but it got my attention. It's it's really an article uh, that is about the hazards of generalizing, and I think that's very useful. So um, what I want to uh, propose and have a little conversation with you about is the benefit of studying the mind. You can't train the mind until you've studied the mind. You have to study the patterns and habits that are so familiar you don't, you're not even aware necessarily of uh, certain patterns. And what I have discovered is that um, as I study the patterns that are so familiar I may not be so aware of them. Um, This is where having my husband and the people I practice with keeping me in a feedback loop is very useful. And I also notice that doing uh, a practice, which I've talked about when I've uh, come here in the past, um, every day I write once or twice for five minutes a timed writing And I'll start with a a phrase. When I start to write, and then I just keep my hand moving for five minutes, and I have an egg timer set for five minutes in the other room, so I'm not listening to the tick, tick, tick. And when it goes ding, I take my pencil off the paper, and I don't look at what I've written until the next day or a couple days later. But I've discovered that this is a very effective way of studying what is habitual and consequently not necessarily noticed. You can't change what you don't see. And, of course, uh, the language that we use in the way we speak and the language that we use in our thoughts and the language that we get excited about when we hear somebody else speaking in certain ways, it can all be uh, very uh, rich material to work with. So um, the power of negative thinking, (laughs) for example, uh, this is uh, August 5th, Um, more than being about negative thinking, it's an example of generalizing. And the difference between statements that are generalizations and statements that are specific and descriptive of what is particular, it's it's a huge difference. And the more, um, if you think about uh, things you've read that you've enjoyed reading, I bet they're they're not full of generalization. 
They might be, but maybe not, often not. Um, so uh, this is not really about the power of negative thinking. It's about the power of generalizing. Uh, I recommend the article to you. Um, what I, uh, when, I, when James asked me if I would uh, come in and give a talk this evening... Um, I started kind of munching around thinking about, well, what would be uh, useful to talk about? And um, what's been coming up um, is really inspired by a a painting that we have of the wheel of existence. And in the middle of the painting is like the roots of existence, greed, hate, and delusion, represented by a pig, a rooster, and a snake. And they're in the the centerpiece, biting. The pig is biting the tail of the rooster, and the rooster is biting the tail of the snake, and the snake is biting the tail of... They're uh, they're eating at each other. And um, I I find that particular iconographic uh, picture of greed, hate, and delusion very useful. I have it on the wall where I meditate every day. So I see it um, at least twice a day, if not more often than not. And uh, I find the the depiction so vivid that um, the teaching about pay attention to the arising of greed, hatred, and delusion, or illusion, uh, carefully. And um, notice when any of those so-called three poisons are showing up, in particular. Um, (laughs) When I started uh, going over this, um, you know, recounting uh, with my husband this uh, painting that's uh, in our meditation room, he said, well, what about the crows of desire? (laughs) This is because we uh, have bird feeders for wild birds, and we have a lot of crows. And the crows are very bossy, and they want to eat all the food, and they don't want anybody else to have it. So paying attention to crow behavior is very, very interesting, very informative. <laughs> the crows of desire, they're full of it. It's absolutely true. So um, another uh, threesome, if you will, that I think is worth paying attention to is attraction, aversion, and ignorance. And ignorance is the source of what we're, when we get caught with, with too much attraction or too much aversion. And for many of us, we kind of flip between attraction and aversion without necessarily realizing those are the two polar, uh, polar opposites that we go back and forth between. And um, noticing cannot, sometimes it's not so much fun but very useful. And this is where um, I want to recommend noting in what uh, is sometimes referred to as bare noting, that is, noticing 
briefly and then coming back to the alignment of the head center for the head center the heart center the belly center groundedness alignment and then proceed and don't get caught in thinking about what you're noticing just note briefly and what i have discovered over the years is that if i note briefly then a little while later, what will bloop up is some insight about whatever that habit or patterning is. And if I try to think it through, I get caught in thinking. So I'm just um, reinforming and re-energizing what is habitual rather than noting a pattern. I'm noticing content rather than pattern. And I can't recommend enough the benefits of Noticing pattern rather than content. Um, we can get caught with expectation. We can get caught with storytelling. We can get caught with uh, variations on the theme. But I think what I'm laying out here is, is uh, probably sufficient. Um, there's a practice that I first started doing some years ago um, in a retreat, a long retreat, uh, with people that I've been practicing with for quite some time. Um, and as I started after, it was a 10-day retreat, and after the first three days, and I started meeting with people, and what I discovered was that practically everybody in the retreat was suffering a kind of uh, intense... Um, drowning, if you will, in the habit of judgment. So lots of speculation about what they did right or what they did wrong or what someone else did right or what someone else did wrong, etc., etc. So um, what I suggested was that during the formal sitting meditation periods, during the retreat, when that kind of... um, patterning came up, would come up, to just keep saying, don't know, don't know, don't know, don't know. So don't know in that context became a kind of dissolver of trying to figure out what you actually, in many cases, don't know. And, um, of course, what happened was the discovery of how how many more moments... What's actually so is don't know, even though I've been pretending that I know or think I should know. And so what, what people started reporting partway through that particular retreat was a kind of relief at the support and um, affirmation that don't know was a completely legitimate state of mind. And that, that what was true more often than not was don't know rather than know. And even if I think I know something, I may know something in this moment, but do I know in a big way? Do I know in general? Do I know in a kind of abstraction? Um, I found this particular practice very helpful uh, driving on one Highway 128 after 128 leaves 101 and heads towards the coast. Two-lane, curvy road, people driving like maniacs, you know, passing on a double line 
on a blind curve, things like that. And now that Caltrans has deepened the drainage ditch, there's no way to move over. So I like to drive that road when there aren't very many people on the road, which these days is not so often the case because it's tourist season um, in any event. Um, I remember getting behind someone who had a big van full of teenage girls, and she was driving around the curves very fast and then stopped in the first town in the valley, and all these kids got out and, of course, promptly got carsick on the side of the road because, of course, she'd been driving really fast. Well, she was trying to get to some place where she could pull over before the kids got sick in the car. Understandable. Without recognizing that her very driving was <laughs> encouraging the car sickness. Anyway, it was, uh, it was one of those experiences, driving behind her and then seeing the consequences with these kids sick all over the sidewalk in downtown Boonville in the Anderson Valley. It's very... I, I learned a great deal from that particular situation. <laughs> Namely, that I didn't begin to know what was uh, encouraging the driver to drive the way she was. She thought she was helping the kids by getting there quickly so that they had to have a place where they could get out and get some soda pop. And if they had to get sick, they could get sick where the side of the road was wide and safe. And Anyway... <laughs> was one of those memorable lessons that I, to this day, have not forgotten. Um, so what I want to suggest for our uh, consideration is that if greed, hate, and delusion are what are uh, depicted in that centerpiece driving the wheel of existence then how do we develop non-greed, non-hatred, and non-aversion? How do we do this rather than this? And my experience is I have to be willing to notice when I do this, when I hang on, when I get caught with trying to control what I actually am not able to control except in the moment. I may notice some arising of desire, or greed, a small, uh, from an energy standpoint, a small dose of greed, but nevertheless greed, the I want habit. And if I note and then do this, there's a shift in what's going on in the state of mind. If I judge greed, if I judge desire, there's almost a way in which it's like putting a bellows on a flame. So what I want to um, invite you to consider is the advantage of noting very briefly and then focusing on a neutral body sensation, breath in, breath out. It makes a big, big difference. Otherwise, you get caught in storytelling. You get uh, caught in judging the judge. And... um, My experience is that judging the judge doesn't lead to less suffering, quite the opposite. Um, I also uh, want to recommend the benefits of having a swim buddy. 
somebody that you have some relationship with uh, with respect to uh, practicing some aspect of the Buddha's teachings. Um, I'm fortunate to have a great swim buddy with my husband who will has learned how to notice a, a habit of mine to me skillfully without my feeling like uh, he's coming at me with a tank. Um, he's become very skillful in uh, bringing my attention to what he observes I'm not noticing. So um, the habit of expectation and, expect- and having an expectation that's a negative uh, was something that he observed to me uh, two or three years ago uh, in the context of kind of fear-based expectation about what would be coming my way from our next-door neighbor. And he did it in such a way that I could actually hear and digest what he was pointing out, which then led to my being able to begin to notice the very habit he was pointing out. Um, I've been uh, in a small group of six, usually an odd number, seven, five, seven, or nine people. Uh, I remember one uh, group of uh, nine of us, including me, and we met every Friday morning and meditated, and then we would have some, uh, we'd, we would agree on a practice, and then everybody would say a, a little weather report about what was coming up in the practice that we'd agreed as a group that we would do. And the agreement was we would listen, but we wouldn't comment. It was very useful. Because, of course, having witnesses of that sort but knowing that I wasn't going to be inundated or none of us were going to be inundated with a lot of helpful criticism or observation meant the speaker began to listen attentively. It was very useful. We met for um, over a year every Friday morning, meditating, and then whatever we decided that we would pick up as a practice with respect to uh, what we would say and how we would react to what we would hear from somebody else was enormously useful. So um, I recommend if, if there are a few people, especially in odd numbers, very helpful, uh, to be in a group where what uh, you're doing is you're all working with the same material, but of course you're working with different material but maybe the, uh, the same practice for bringing attention to uh, whatever you want to bring attention to. That makes sense? Um, I also want to suggest that the practice of restraint in studying and training the mind is useful. Because if, I, if I'm uh, too eager to clean up my act, if you will, um, I may become impatient. And out of impatience, I may become 
full of judgment of what I'm observing. So what I want to go for is the ability to observe and describe in particular briefly. And I, I, I don't want to fall into what is uh, growing up in the family that I grew up in. Um, judgment was, the habit of judgment was like my mother's milk, if you will. My mother uh, was herself very hard on herself, but she was also hard on the rest of us living with her. And it was so familiar that it took me a long time to notice the habit of judgment. And um, my experience in in working with uh, the practitioners that I've been working with now for a number of years is that um, what we grew up with, what was familiar from the time we were young, is often the last habit or pattern we may notice. So um, finding a way to work with somebody who can reflect back to you habits that they are aware of, but do it in a way that isn't harsh, doesn't feed whatever your tendency may be to be harsh with yourself about the habits of the mind, the habits. um, I find starting with habits in what I say leads to habits in what I think. And if I can move from what I say into noting the language in my thoughts, I can begin then to... Uh, adjust or reframe what I thought or what I said. That makes sense. Um, and I want to encourage you to be patient. Be very, be very open-handed with yourselves in studying and training your mind, because the process of studying and training your mind especially what is the most deeply seated in the mind, may take some while. You know, if I've been practicing a certain language pattern for 30 or 40 or more years, do I think that that's going to uh, dissolve in a week or two? Well, I may want that, but it's not realistic. So uh, this is where having uh, some swim buddies can make a big difference, can be a big help. And um, somebody I was just uh, working with, uh, a a practitioner who I've been practicing with for maybe more than almost anybody else I can think of, we only see each other once or twice a month, but we talk on the phone at least once a week And she writes to me via email, um, usually doing some version of that timed writing, uh, five minutes just writing something on her computer and and sending it. But I encouraged her not to send me what she'd written in that way until she felt really at, um, at ease in letting me see what she was up to. Because, of course, she has a very strong judge. And it was very easy for her to imagine that I would be 
the judge that she was used to. And um, so what I, what I did was um, I would just listen or read what she'd said or written to me, and I wouldn't give her any feedback until she asked me for feedback, and she had to ask at least three times. And um, I was very slow to give her feedback until it was clear to me that she really was ready. And, of course, um, she and I then began working together with coming up with little, um, uh, how can I put it, little paper banners that she'd write out something she wanted to pay attention to. Can't. Um, it. Should. Ought. Ought not. Oh, a, a great, uh, there's a list of some of my favorite words. Um, we, you, always, never, can, can't, will, won't. You, you, th- those are, those are the, what I consider the kind of hot button words that are very useful to be able to notice. So uh, then um, somebody that I was practicing with some while ago uh, became quite a good calligrapher. So she took pieces of paper about that big, and she beautifully calligraphed these different words, and then um, would uh, do the calligraphy on a piece of heavy cardboard that she'd taken a brush with some beautiful color as the background, and then she had it um, laminated and would pass them out to, you know, or put them in a box and say, just take any of these that you think would be useful. So one of the practices um, that she did this with was the practice of the half smile, which if you have a habit of judgment, shifting to slightly lifting the corners of the mouth so you have the sensation of lifting the corners without necessarily looking like you're smiling. But it's a way of shifting your attention from whatever is going on in your mind to the physicalness of that slight lifting of the corners of the mouth. And this, the experience when you do that is suddenly you feel like you're standing in the middle of a very big space. Uh, and it's, so it's a very uh, effective antidote to the habit of judgment. It's a very effective antidote to the habit of anger uh, uh, or irritability. Um, That physicalness. So just do it for a moment. Three breaths. That's too much of a smile. (laughs) A judgment. (laughs) Just the slightest corners. And that focus on the physicalness of the lifting of the corners of the mouth can be such an uh, effective physical focusing instead of feeding what's going on with thoughts. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Now, somebody back there was either 
coughing or raising your hand. Somebody have something you wanted to bring up? No? Okay. Um, so my suggestion is... Um, Allow yourself to pick some situation that occurs in your life on a pretty regular basis. And notice, uh, particularly pick a, if you can, pick a situation where you're aware of some kind of reactivity so that you can note the reactivity, but then shift to a neutral body sensation, breath in, breath out. You don't want to linger. Um, Lingering can lead to sinking, kind of sinking mind. Does that make make sense? Okay. When I was 10... Some friends of my parents uh, were suddenly transferred to, in their work situation, to New York City, and they had a milk cow. So they gave me the milk cow, one milking lesson, a stool, a bucket, and a piece of rope to tie her tail to her hind leg because otherwise she'd bring it around like this and whap me right here as I'm, you know, trying to milk her. One lesson. I still have, I don't have the cow anymore, of course, but I still have the milk bucket and the stool. And um, pretty soon we had so much milk. Oh, then I got a butter churn. I started making butter. I couldn't give the milk or the butter away. I mean... Everybody in the neighborhood was just flooded with milk and cream and butter. And, and um, then we got p- pigs because we had so much milk, we, we couldn't give it away. Fortunately, at some point, she finally went dry. <laughs> and then she became our, my, my pet. But I learned a great deal from that cow because it didn't matter what was going on at school. She had to be milked at 6 in the morning and 6 in the evening. So she was my first Zen teacher. It didn't matter what I had going on. I had to be there to milk her at 6 in the morning and 6 in the evening every day. It was a a great... She was a great teacher. She was also a a sweetheart. We called her Sil, short for Sylvia. (laughs) So um, I'm telling you about this because I think we all have teachers in teaching situations if we're open to noticing them. I'm not recommending that you rush out and get a cow, especially not in most of the East Bay. Um, but there are substitutes. Um, when I first got here, uh, I didn't know what the traffic was going to be like, and and uh, so I got here uh, a couple of hours before we start before we started to meet, 
And there was a young man riding on uh, San Pablo Avenue with the most enormous, I think it was a cockatiel, some big, colorful South American bird. And he'd stop at the corner and they'd sort of schnuzzle and, and then he'd go along. You know, he's got the bird and, and the bicycle and pedaling away. It was quite wonderful. And I, watching him with his bird reminded me of what it was like when I was young and had the cow and then the pigs and then uh, a horse. And pretty soon there were five horses. I mean, it's just one thing led to another. Um, dogs. The first dog I remember was very beautiful and very stupid. A gorgeous Dalmatian who I'd give a bath to him and then he'd get up on the chair and I'd tie him to the chair so he would dry and then he'd jump off the chair and run around the yard with the chair banging on him. <laughs> and every once in a while I think, oh, I'm like that dog. It, th- those, those examples can be very useful. Maybe embarrassing, but very useful. So, Okay. Um, I wonder if any of you have something you'd like to bring up for us to talk about. Yes, please. Oh, yes, here. This. You want this, right? Huh? We're recording you both. Oh. Well, that means we could be recording you as well. Um, as a man with a wonderful wife, I, I'd like to hear you um, or, or hear more about how your husband voices his, um, his criticisms or in such a beautiful way because I need that. <laughs> um. First of all, he doesn't do it unless I've given him permission to give me feedback. I invite him to give me feedback. And we've been, um, we've been married for 29 years. We were an item before that. And it's a second marriage for both of us. And we learned, we each learned a lot from our first marriages. We made a lot of mistakes the first time around, which has been a a positive resource in the relationship that Bill and I have with each other now. Um, I actually, I'm quite clear that the fact that we each are quite committed to studying and following the teachings of the Buddha, Buddhas and ancestors, has been an important feature in our life together. Um, Bill tends to study sutras and commentaries, um, and I'm much more um, used to uh, taking specific uh, mind-training practices. So there's a way in which we each complement the other, because we don't have exactly the same um, 
inclination. Bill is, um, he's quite gifted in learning languages. So he knows, he's fluent in, in English, in German, in French, and now in Spanish. We live up in the Anderson Valley, and uh, at least between a third and a half of the population in the valley uh, is made up of, of, of Latino uh, people. So he decided to learn Spanish, uh, and his Spanish teacher, he found somebody to teach him Spanish, but his Spanish teacher doesn't know grammar. So Bill learned Spanish grammar, and he would then bring 10 questions to the weekly class. So pretty soon the whole group, including the teacher, started to get some exposure to grammar as well. Um, and so his... Um, entry point, if you will, into the Buddhist teachings is through his knowing all those different languages. Oh, he also knows ancient Greek. He learned uh, Greek because he wanted to read the Odyssey in the original language. So he taught himself Greek, and he got a, 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 an instructor, somebody uh, who is a graduate student here at UC Berkeley, and he learned uh, ancient Greek, uh, riding the bus into work every day, back and forth. I am not gifted with languages. Uh, I am very intrigued by English, but I have not had, I, I, I don't have an ear for other languages, mostly. But I am very sensitive to tone of voice and emphasis and delivery and all of that. So we have complementary uh, ways of relating to the languages that occur in the household. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but um, there's, there's a, especially in a long-term relationship, when you have a kind of uh, open-heartedness and patience with each other, that then begins to be increasingly more and more reciprocal. And I certainly notice that with the people that I practice with on a regular basis. We have come, because we meet um, either on the phone or in person, um, at least twice a month, and then I have a one-on-one a, a -on -one interview with uh, my regular students, uh, usually once a week. So there's a way in which we get to know each other. And one of the most important lessons I learned, I learned from Suzuki Roshi, who was my first uh, teacher. Um, I remember during a retreat one day, I, I, he said, it is true that sometimes I am the teacher and you are the student. It's also true that sometimes you are the teacher and I am the student. That really dropped in for me. And I thought, I want to pay attention to that. When I started sitting in the teaching seat, I realized I also want to regularly be sitting in the student seat. And especially in doing long retreats, I follow the schedule and am a participant in the retreat fully in the way that the so-called students are as well. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad that I uh, had the, the sense to, to do that.
because it means that um, I'm not ever just sitting in the teaching seat. And um, I learn a lot from, from those various possibilities. That makes sense? Um, having a long-term committed relationship can be a great source for studying and training one's mind, especially if you avoid studying and training your partner's mind. <laughs> Big trouble. With, uh, uh, unless there's some invitation. And even then, I'd want to be a little careful. <laughs> Okay, anybody else have something you want to bring up? My goodness. Yes, please. He's going to bring you a microphone so then you're really going to be on the on the the spot. Thank you very much. Um, I I was just curious, when you were talking earlier about the, the group that met every week mm-hmm. um, and that you uh, would decide as a, as a group about on a practice, did you actually, um, in, did, you pra- did you all do the practice yes. between in that time yes. before the next meeting yes. so that you really had some material to, um, well, to work with? Yes, um, and... Because we were um, practicing uh, sitting and walking meditation, um, and then we would go around the circle and each person would talk about what was up for them that particular week. And we got to know each other because of that. Because we also agreed not to give each other feedback, but to just listen. And what emerged week by week would be something that kind of caught our collective attention. And um, it wasn't always me saying, oh, well, what, let's focus on each... Per- Everybody took turns uh, spotting what seemed resonated as, oh, this is something I'd like to s- hang out with for a while. And once that began to happen, it happened more easily. There was a way in which um, keeping my mouth closed (laughs) and waiting until something emerged within the group um, led to a kind of confidence on the part of the members of the group to speak up with a sense of what was hot for them and they wondered if this is up for me, I wonder if anybody else would like to focus on this. And there was a, a kind of generosity among the members of the group so that uh, no one person, including me, was, was you know, sticking up. There's an expression. Um, I, I, in the last year, my short-term memory has become, I call it my Swiss cheese memory. <laughs> um, so what I'm about to uh, say is uh, an instance of uh, something I remember, but I don't know where, what I re- where I remember it from. And that's the statement that if you... It, it, comes, it comes out of Japanese culture. 
If you've got a board with nails sticking up out of the board, and one nail sticks up higher than all the others, that's the nail that's going to get hit with the hammer. Now, of course, in a culture like Japanese culture, where there is an emphasis on harmony and, and uh, kind of agreeableness uh, in the neighborhood or the village, etc., um, that it makes particular sense in that context. But I also think that in, in various ways in which we might be together with a group of people, um, in my experience, uh, around meditation practices and studying the mind, having one person dominate the uh, inquiry, uh, pretty soon the group kind of collapses and just says, you do it. You're the star. And my experience is that there's a much richer dialogue when there's more, um, how can I put it, more opportunity for every member of the group to speak up. Does that make sense? Yes, please. Oh, the, the, yeah, the microphone. The, the, the traveling microphone. <laughs> Thank you. I, I had a question about, um, about the, one of these groups that you were working with. And a couple of things about it. Uh, number one is, as you were, as, as weekly you go ahead and do your check-ins, how closely were you with hearing Jess to talking about practice as opposed to all the other hills and valleys up and downs that people within a, a group have. So how restrictive were you in the practice as opposed to the ups and downs of life? And number two is, um, are, there, are there signs that you note in a group that it's time to take, you know, kind of take down the tent and the groups actually outlive their usefulness? Or can you foresee them just going on? All right, let me see if I can come at uh, both questions, which I think are are quite useful. Um, I have a group that I've been working with in Alaska for 20-some-odd years, and I've been going up to them twice a year and some of them come down to do retreats with me down here. But I, when I go up there, I meet with everybody individually, but I also meet with... Uh, I've, I've had two groups up there, and I've met with each of those groups, and then we've also done a retreat. So I might be up there for 10 days or two weeks during that time. Um, and because... We were all doing, we have all been doing retreats together. In the course of a retreat, I'd give a Dharma talk and then there would be an open discussion. So there was a way in which what different. There's a way in which. Am I, oh, did I just die? No, it's on my lap. Oh, it's not. Yeah, maybe it is. It's red. 
I'll use this. Is this does this work? I can take all this off. Where was I? Um, because although I may be working with a small group of people in a group, we also, on a pretty regular basis, at least twice and usually three or four times a year, are doing a retreat together. And in that context, the kinds of issues that people bring up, like I'll give a talk and then there'll be a time for us to have a discussion or people will bring up whatever is up for them coming up in the retreat. So um, there's, there, especially because the tr- retreats are not big. They may be anywhere from 5 to 20 people, but not bigger than that. And in a, a group of that size... Um, it's pretty hard to have a lot of secrets in, in a certain way. In Alaska and and uh, down here, the group uh, in the East Bay, we meet once a month. But I am in touch with the members of the group every week. Um, they may bring up what is personal, but it's always in the context of a practice that they're working with. That's always the primary focus. And um, people are, I'm sometimes quite moved by how open the people I practice with are with me about what's up for them. Um, But that isn't necessarily material that they or I will disclose in the group context. And it's not necessary. Because you can talk about pattern without content. And um, I've done a lot of work myself. At one point, I um, took a year's sabbatical, and I did a lot of meditation every day, and I did a lot of work with a, a psychotherapist doing, trying to clean up my own act, having grown up in an alcoholic family. I had a lot of, I was very interested in the application of systems theory to family life and relationships with people ongoingly. And that, I, that sub, year's sabbatical was very useful in terms of my uh, finding my way into um, working with what was really my work and not having it got kind of dumped into uh, what was coming up in, in the conversations I was having with an individual student or a group of students. Um, I've also uh, been very clear that as long as I'm sitting in the teaching seat, I also need to sit in the student seat. And I'm quite committed to that. And uh, my teacher is Shoto Harada Roshi. And um, I've been very, um, I've been lucky in, as long as I've been teaching, I've always had a teacher. And I think that's uh, saved me from getting into a certain kind of trouble. 
I can still get into trouble, but it doesn't kind of go underground quite so easily, if you know what I mean. And um, my husband also, um, I, I have been consistent in inviting him to give me feedback. Um, and and he's, been, he's been very um, astute and useful in giving me feedback. But, you know, it, it helped that I invited him to do that. And he's been up for it, so. Yeah. Thank you for the question. It's a useful question. Anybody else? We've got two minutes to go. Yes. Now, are you speaking in particular about my relationship with my husband or my uh, relationship with the people I practice with? Um... I don't give somebody... The only mind I can mind is this mind. And I think that's true for all of us. Um, If somebody asks me if I will accept them as a student, I usually wait for them to ask me at least three times. And that may be over some period of time. Um, And I want them to really spy on me. I ask the people I practice with to spy on me, especially during retreats. So I follow the schedule. I'm um, part of the, you know, whoever's cooking lunch, I'm on one of the crews cooking a meal and doing the cleanup, etc. And I think that supports the people I practice with to feel safe in uh, giving me feedback. Um, but I also don't invite people to give me feedback until we've been practicing together for a while. Um, I I think it's useful for us to get to know each other over some period of time. Does that answer your question or get out what you were wondering about? Okay, good. All right, it is, um, I think, time to close. And... uh, I think you usually do the uh, 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 closing of the re- with the refuges. Is that correct? No? You do it at the beginning. Oops. Okay. Please. Somebody who knows to chant. I'll chant with you, but. I don't know if I can do it without the card now that I want to. There you go. May we give the metta for this wonderful talk that we've heard today to all beings and ourselves. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.